Would you open your Bibles to two or three passages, if you're able to turn to them all, don't worry, if not. Uh, first, from Acts chapter 2, verse 34. This is from Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 34. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And if you turn over one page to chapter 3, verse 21, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. And then I'm going to read from Matthew 25, starting at verse 6. Today, this will probably be my last sermon on this series from Matthew 25. Uh, started when we first came over uh, from a sermon I preached a year ago on Matthew 25, and that just... Uh, gave birth to a lot more sermons, and uh, I think, though, I will wind that little series up today. This talk today will be a summary of all that I've tried to say in recent weeks from Matthew 25. Verse 6, at midnight, and that word comes from a Greek, two Greek words that mean middle of the night. We're not talking about 12 o'clock, end of history as some have thought. It's just middle of the night. A cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. We'll stop there. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Spirit to be upon every mind present, that their perception of what I say will be received and applied as you intend upon my tongue, my mind, that I'll be cleansed, that I will be your transparent instrument to say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. May this be a life-changing word. For all I know, a wake-up call before the final wake-up call. May it be a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 110, verse 1, 
is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament where David said of the Messiah, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What I want to do today is to show the connection between Psalm 110 verse 1 and Matthew 25 verse 10 which says, while they went on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Now, as we have seen in recent weeks, it's the wise virgins who go into the banquet. The foolish are shut out. The banquet is the great revival that precedes the second coming of Jesus. And it is during this great revival when the enemies of the gospel are defeated. And so the foolish are shut out. That is, they do not get to participate in the greatest revival since Pentecost. Now, if I may put it this way, in this congregation today, uh, we have what Jesus would call the ten virgins, the church. And the assumption is these people have all been converted. Every Christian is called to come into his or her inheritance. Some do, some don't. Those who do, in this particular case, are called wise virgins who took oil with them as they were awaiting the announcement of the coming of the bridegroom. So the foolish virgins took no oil with them. And I apply that to the Christians who come into their inheritance, those who do not come into their inheritance. What is inheritance? Well, that is the reward for persistent faith. Now, there are two kinds of faith. Saving faith, which gets you to heaven, and persistent faith that enables you to come into your inheritance on your way to heaven, and that will be recognized at the judgment seat of Christ when you will get a reward those foolish virgins, those who do not come into their inheritance, will go to heaven. But they will save by fire. They'll be saved by fire. They will have no reward. There are those who say, well, I don't care whether I get a reward at the judgment seat of Christ. I just want to know I'll get to heaven. I reply, you won't feel that way then. Because at the judgment seat of Christ, every single one of us, individually, person by person, will give an account of our lives as though there were no one else judged. And yet, with everybody looking on. And it will be an awesome day. So much so that 
when Paul mentioned it in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, the account of the ten virgins is just one aspect of inheritance. But I'm referring to it because it shows what the state of the church will be like in the last day. And as I happen to believe that we are in the very last days before the end, it should not surprise us that Jesus describes all of us as being asleep. Now, as you've heard me say, you don't know you were asleep until you wake up. And when you wake up, you're astonished that you'd been asleep. And so this is what we have. Now, in the case of the ten virgins, those who took no oil, the oil being a symbol of the Holy Spirit, those who did not pursue the things of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they started out with oil. They're converted. But they did not take preparation. And the foolish virgins are those who will miss out on the greatest move of the Holy Spirit in the history of the church. And so the wise virgins will be right in the middle of the greatest work of the Spirit since Pentecost. Now what is clear? Jesus will not leave his throne at God's right hand until all his enemies are his footstool. Now, there are those who believe that the enemies of God will not be defeated until Jesus actually comes. It's after the second coming that the enemies of God will be defeated. That's the view of some. But according to Psalm 110, verse 1, quoted more than any other verse in the New Testament, it is while Jesus is still in heaven. In fact, what I just read, he will remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. And so, it will be at the right hand of God. He hasn't left his throne. He's there now. That's where Jesus is at this moment. He's at the right hand of God. And so, because... He will not leave until he makes all of his enemies his footstool. It shows what he will do while he's still in heaven. It brings God far more glory for Jesus to do what he does at the right hand of God than if he had left his throne and then came to the earth and destroyed his people with the brightness of his coming. He could certainly do that. But according to the word of God, all this will happen while he's still in heaven. The question is, how will he get this done? If he himself stays in heaven, how will he defeat the enemies of the gospel? Well, let me tell you how this will happen. He will defeat his enemies from the right hand of God by using people like you and me. As a matter of fact, the great 
people used in the coming revival will not be the Billy Grahams of this world. It will not come through faith healers like the Oral Roberts of this world. I'll tell you something I thought of this morning. I referred to it in the first service. I haven't thought about it for years. 25 years ago, I may not have the exact year, something like 25 years ago, uh, in this country, there was a lady whose name is Jennifer Reese Larkham. I don't know if anybody here would know who that is, but she was a household name among evangelicals in England. She spoke all around the country, but always from a wheelchair. She was paralyzed from the waist down, but was a great speaker. And I remember her coming to hear me preach once when I was in Bristol. And uh, we had a very good relationship. And then, lo and behold, a story leaks out and it spreads all over England like wildfire. A young lady who had been converted three weeks went up to Jennifer Reese Larkham, laid hands on her, and she was instantly healed and stood up and has never been in her wheelchair since. Now, here's the funny thing. Everybody under the sun had prayed for her up until then. I mean, everybody, all wanting to have a go. And they brought in the people with the greatest anointing and those who they thought had the gift of faith. Nobody succeeded. And then, out of the blue, a young lady, been saved three weeks, walks over and lays hands on her, and she's healed. The reason I tell you that is that's the kind of thing that's going to happen in this great move of the Spirit. And I, for one, I'd like to be right in the middle of it, but it will be a day when we will say to the Oral Roberts of this world, move over to one side, you are not needed. Because every single one of us pursuing our inheritance, taking oil in our vessels, will be the ones used of God. And imagine how this could happen in London. You just go around looking for somebody to pray for. If you see them in a wheelchair, you make a, a line for them. If you hear they're ill, you will just actually go to hospitals and start praying for people. And this word will spread from one county to another in England. It'll sweep over into France. It'll go down to Italy. It'll go through Russia. It'll reach Hong Kong. It'll spread right around the world where thousands and thousands and thousands are healed under the power of God. And this will be part of the process by which all of God's enemies are brought to be Jesus' footstool. And so it is when the wise virgins go to the marriage banquet, and the virgins that were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Now, it's very interesting. This is how God will use us to defeat the enemies, uh, and it will also be because so many will be saved. The gospel will be restored. 
the book of Romans, especially Romans chapter 4, will become the central theme. It's a sad day. I don't know if you're aware of it, but the gospel is somehow passed behind a cloud. And people seem to be interested in everything but the gospel. But in this day, the gospel will be restored. There will be signs, wonders, miracles like in the book of Acts. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but in a gradual way, this is already happening. Did you know that Africa is becoming more Christian every day, passing up Islam? Did you know that India is almost already a Christian country? A lot of people don't know this. This is happening right under our noses. And it is now estimated that by the year 2020, China will be a Christian country, probably more Christians in China than any nation in the world, including the United States of America. This is already happening. But when the cry comes in the middle of the night, it will be a word that will go right around the world in the same way that on September 11th, 2001, we call it 9-11, a moment that we all will never forget. History would never be the same again. What happened when those two buildings fell from the planes that crashed them? That word went around the world in hours. The whole world knew about it in hours. In the same way, when this cry comes in the middle of the night, it's a word that will go right around the world. Now, why is this message important? Well, it is a warning to anyone who is listening to me right now, not pursuing your inheritance. R.T., tell me more, what is that? How do I know I'm pursuing my inheritance? All right, first of all, do you know for sure that you're saved? Let me ask you this question. Do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven, do you? And if you were to stand before God, and you will, and he were to ask you, he might, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And if you were put right on the spot, and you're standing before God, and you're alone, and you can't look around to find anybody to support you, and you've got to now answer for your own soul. Peer pressure will mean nothing. Having rewards from people will mean nothing. Having their accolades will mean nothing. Now you're standing before God, and He says to you, why should I let you in? And only one answer will do. And it's heaven or hell as a result of your reply. What would you say? And I have to say to you now, if immediately you begin to think, well, I think I've, I've done this or that, you begin to think of yourself, I was baptized, I joined a church, and whatever, and it doesn't cross your mind that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that that is the reason you should go to heaven. I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. In other words, when I just now asked you, 
what you would say to God, and you think, well, I, I think I've probably, you know, I've been pretty good. And you think along those lines. I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this shows where your hope is. And if you don't know for sure that you'll go to heaven because you're trusting the blood of Jesus Christ, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. That's the first step. Then having invited Jesus Christ to come in as your Savior and Lord, you persist in faith. And that means you will walk in all the light God gives you. You will obey his word on any area where the Holy Spirit points something out. It's living in total forgiveness. When you totally forgive anybody who's hurt you, when you walk without any bitterness, without the need to point the finger all the time, run people down, finding fault, and you're living in that kind of atmosphere, this means you're not walking in the Spirit. You're not pursuing your inheritance. And I hate to say it, but many Christians today, they, it doesn't seem to bother them that they are bitter, angry all the time. It doesn't seem to bother them that they don't forgive and pray for their enemies. It doesn't bother them. Are you saying they're not saved? No. Foolish virgins. They had oil. They had a beginning, but they didn't pursue the things of the Holy Spirit. And so it's a warning because these foolish virgins, when the cry came, it became apparent what they were. Foolish, saved, but locked out. Because it says, they that were ready went in to the banquet, and the door was shut. And from that moment, there's not a thing you can do. In fact, they cried out, Lord, Lord, open to us. Here's what's going to happen. I hope none here, but if you're typical, about half of you. I don't say that the five wise and five foolish men, it's 50-50. I don't think you should push the analogy that far. But chances are there are those here today. You're saved, but just. You're not walking in the light God gives you. Christ is not everything to you. He's a convenience. You believe in him. And then when the cry comes, this condition is exposed, and you say, oh, and here's what will happen. You will go to those who were pursuing their inheritance, and you will say, pray for me. Please pray for me. Please pray for me. And the reply will come, well, I'll, I'll pray for you, but I'm just barely in the position I'm in now because I was asleep too, but I've got oil. And, and so those even walking in their inheritance were asleep because Jesus said, 
Everybody was asleep. You don't know you were asleep until you wake up. And while you were asleep in your dreams, you do things you wouldn't do if you were awake. But then when you wake up, you realize it's too late. And in this case, there's nothing they could do to get in on the great banquet. It's exactly what happened in ancient Israel. In Numbers chapter 13, here's what happened. God told the children of Israel to send 12 spies into the promised land to see what it was like. And uh, they all came back with a good report. They said, oh, it's wonderful. In fact, they said, we went into the land. It, it does flow with milk and honey. They had the fruit to put, show it. Uh, and Caleb says, we should go up and take possession of the land. God's with us. We can do it. But you know what? The ten other spies outvoted him and Joshua and said, no, we dare not do it. The land we explored, uh, these people are giants. We're grasshoppers in their eyes, and, and we can't do it. And it was one of the saddest moments in Israeli history when the ten tribes voted not to go in to the land of Israel. Something happened right then. It's described in Psalm 95 and Hebrews chapter 3. God swore in His wrath that they would not enter his rest. That means they would not come into their inheritance. When God swears an oath, he cannot find anything greater or anyone greater. He just swears by himself. Now, when someone swears an oath here below, in order to be believed, you say, I, I swear I'm telling you the truth. And some will say, I, I, I uh, swear on my mother's grave. <laughs> Something that will make you believe they're telling the truth. Well, when God swears, how does He do it? Well, He can't find anything great. He just swears by Himself. And God can swear in one of two ways. One, He can swear an oath in mercy. This is what Hebrews chapter 6 is about, that every Christian should experience personally God swearing an oath in mercy to you. So if God swears in mercy, the wonderful thing is it's irrevocable. It can't be changed. It's the best thing that can happen to a Christian in his heart on this planet when God swears an oath to you. But then the other is when he swears in wrath. If he swears in wrath, it too is irrevocable, and there's nothing that will change his mind. So here's what happened. The next day, the children of Israel, they all got together and said, you know what? We made a mistake. We should go in. We can do it. And they all got together and said, we're going to go in to the land. And Moses said, it's too late. Oh, no, we can do it. Moses said, don't even think about it. It's too late. Oh, we will, and they tried, and they were beaten down, and they stayed in that land for 40 years. They were not allowed to go in. Because if God swears an oath, 
in wrath, it's too late. This is what is behind the cry in the middle of the night. It's when God exposes the condition of the church. Those that are wise, they go in, they get in on it. Even though they were asleep, they're awakened. But those who were foolish, they are exposed. And they say, please let us in. But the door was shut. And nothing could change it. Now it's interesting, this, because what I'm speaking about today is actually something you find in many of the parables of Jesus. You take in Luke chapter 12, verse 25. Here's a very small parable. It's, it's just two verses. Luke 12, 35. Here's what Jesus says. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Did you ever knock on a door and the person opened it just as soon as you knocked? And you thought, oh, you were ready. You didn't expect you to come so soon. Or do you know what it is to knock on the door and you know the people are there, but they don't hear you. They're at the other end of the house and you keep knocking and you don't hear. And so it's possible, according to this, that you won't be near the door. We had a lady uh, in Westminster Chapel. Her name was Grace. And she was from Nigeria, and she'd been a Muslim and was gloriously saved. And when she saw this verse, it became very special to her. And she used to say, I want to be right next to the door so that when Jesus knocks, I can open it immediately. You see, this is what I mean by taking oil with you. It's when you hear his voice. Jonathan Edwards taught us that the task of every generation is to discover in which direction the sovereign redeemer is moving, then move in that direction. But how do you know in which direction the sovereign redeemer is moving unless you're right by the door. So when you hear the knock, you open it. Or take Peter and John, Acts chapter 3. They were on their way to a prayer meeting, and they passed by a crippled man, age 40, never walked. They'd done that many times before. But this time, unexpectedly, they stop. And they say to the crippled man, look at us. And he reaches out his hand, he thinks he's going to get money. Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he was healed. My point is, however did Peter and John know to stop and heal him? It's because they were listening to the voice of God, and they knew as they walked, God says, stop. Heal this man. When you're living in such a way, next to the door. So when the knock comes, you're there, you can open it. Listen, 
I don't want to miss what God is in. And when he's ready to work, I want to be there. And so when it comes to this cry in the middle of the night, I'll tell you something. I literally look for this every day. When I woke up this morning, as soon as I've had a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, I begin to think, Lord, could it be today? Why not today? And I begin to imagine, wouldn't this be wonderful? You know, even while I'm preaching, this would be a good moment. How does that make you feel? Would you like for the cry to come right now? Or would you think, oh, wait, 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 give me a few more minutes. I need to pray. <laughs> no, you won't get that kind of time. It'll happen. And I look for it every day. It's coming soon. It will expose where we are. There's another parable where the same principle is taught. It's in Luke chapter 18. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them they should always pray and not give up. This is one of my favorite parables. My two favorite are Matthew 25 and this one in Luke 18. What Jesus is saying here, you go back to God with the same old request every day, every day, every day. For example, I have a prayer list. You could come to where we're living. I wouldn't show it to you, but if you turned found a particular sheet of paper, you'd find my prayer list. It takes me a little while to go through it. I pray it every single day as though I hadn't prayed it before. I go back every day with the same request. Now, listen to this parable. It reads by itself. Jesus said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And then Jesus said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Why do you suppose Jesus asked that question right at the end of that parable? I'll tell you. He wondered if you started praying and after two or three weeks you stopped. And then later, God steps in to answer your prayer and you weren't praying it at the time. You say, well, RT, what's the problem? Because if you pray for it and it's in the will of God, He's going to answer you. And if it's not in the will of God, He's not going to answer you. And surely if you just ask Him once, that's enough. 
I have to tell you that is faulty reasoning because Jesus is putting this to us to say, ask every day, just go back and again and again and again and again. For example, Gabriel appeared to Zechariah in the temple and said, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Zechariah says, prayer? What prayer? Oh, well, you and Elizabeth prayed for a son. Oh, that prayer. Well, that was 20, 25 years ago. Well, <laughs> the wonderful news is your prayer's been heard. You're going to have a son. And do you know what? Zechariah argues back with Gabriel. Can you imagine anything more stupid? I would think if Gabriel appeared to me and he said something, I would believe it. But Gabriel says to Zechariah, your prayer's been heard. Elizabeth will conceive and bear a son. You'll call him John. It was John the Baptist. But Zechariah says, can't be. She's too old. Have you had a look at her lately? Look at her. She's too old. Well, says Gabriel, all I know is I've been told to tell you. <laughs> you know, I have a sermon. I call it, Are You Ready for Answered Prayer? And I don't even remember doing it, but I preached it in Edinburgh, Scotland years ago because I was in Israel preaching at the Garden Tomb. And there must have been 1,500 people there in the audience. And a lady came up to me afterwards, she and her husband, and said, Hi, do you recognize us? You know, you love it when somebody comes up to you and says, Do you, re you recognize me? And you've met hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And I said, mm, No, but your face looks a little familiar. Uh, uh, sometimes you can get away with that. Well, she said, Well, you came to our church in Edinburgh and preached a sermon on, are you ready for answered prayer? I said, oh, yeah. Well, she said, we had for years been asking God that we could come to the Holy Land, and we'd stop praying because we thought we weren't going to get to go. But because of your sermon, we went back to our prayer list and began to pray every day that we could come to Israel. And here we are, and fancy meeting you. I said, well, you know, that's just God's style. He just, he likes to do things like that. I wonder, is there something you used to pray for, but you've stopped? What if God were to answer it? You say, oh, I'd be thrilled to bits. Do you know something? There are two principles you need to know. Principle number one, any Prayer that is prayed in the will of God will be answered. Amen. But principle number two, the shape answered prayer takes is determined by our readiness at the time. If you had said to Zechariah, Zechariah, can you imagine a scenario that Elizabeth and you could have a baby boy, and you not be thrilled to bits about it? Oh, he would say, if, if, if we had a son, 
I'd be the happiest man in the world. Gabriel has to say something now to Zechariah. To Zechariah, I'm sorry, but before I go back to heaven, I've got an unpleasant duty to perform. You're going to be struck dumb and not able to speak because you don't believe what I've just told you. His prayer was answered, but now when it was answered, it's all under a cloud. Elizabeth gets pregnant. I imagine people coming from all over and saying, Zachariah, we're so happy for you. You're going to have a baby. And he goes, He's not allowed to enjoy it. Any prayer that is prayed in the will of God will be answered, but the shape answered prayer takes is determined by our readiness at the time. Zachariah wasn't ready. He'd given up years before. Listen to me. What is it you've been praying for and you've stopped? Go back. Go back. Because until God says no, consider the answer might be yes. Well, it reminds me of a church back in my hometown in Ashland, Kentucky. They, uh, two couples wanted to start a church in Ashland. And people laughed at them, said we, they don't need a new church in the south of Ashland, but these two couples had a burden that they should start a church. And when they got up to 11 people after they had rented a garage for their services. Everybody heard, heard about it, said, did you hear about the group in South Ashland? They had 11 people out. They were laughing at them, making fun of them. They've got 11. But they prayed that one day God would give them a building. And a few years after that, one of the most beautiful edifices in Ashland was built in South Ashland. You can go there now and see it seated some 400 people. On the day of the dedication, the place was packed out. They brought the top leader of their denomination. The streets were lined with cars. If you didn't come early, you couldn't get a place to park. It was packed out. It was a, a, a day when their prayer was answered. But the man whose vision it was to start that church, had in the meantime fallen into bitterness and disgrace and had fallen out with everybody so that he wasn't even welcome to come to church on the day of the dedication. And people said they saw him drive by. He looked and saw the crowds and kept on going. His prayer was answered, but the shape it took was determined by his readiness at the time. And so it's one thing to start out with oil. It's another thing to pursue your inheritance. And could it be that this little talk today is a... Many wake-up call 
that will get you ready for the cry in the middle of the night. Because when that happens, it's God's oath. No changing then. There's a chance for repentance now. And could it be that God has sent me to give this word to somebody that from this moment, you're going to live next to the door. You see, the way Christ's enemies will be defeated is when the church is awakened and the wise virgins take the lead in spreading the gospel, seeing people healed, and it spreads, and you'll hear about it in Shanghai, in Moscow, in Argentina, in New York, Los Angeles, Johannesburg, right around the world. The question is, will you be in the middle of it, or, you, or will you be those off to one side because the door was shut? You see, you consider the state of the church speaking generally, having a form of godliness without the power. The church being in a deep sleep. The state of society, godlessness. Look at the media. What's going on in government? The financial system. The universities. What is taught now in Theology in the leading universities is taught by those that don't even believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. In fact, if you believe he was raised from the dead, you're probably not even welcome to study theology there. When you consider the absence of the sense of the fear of God, abortions multiplying, the slave trade multiplying. As I speak, there are little girls, teenage girls in London screaming. They've been kidnapped and now sold to be prostitutes and can do nothing about it. All this going on and we say, yeah, yeah, we're living in awful days. We go back to sleep. We don't want to be told. We don't want to be awakened. But what's going to happen? Here's the good news. When this happens, this wake up that will go right around the world, those outside the church who haven't heard the gospel will hear it. Millions will embrace it. The fullness of the Gentiles will come in. This means that Islamists, whether in Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, Muslims, by millions, many of them have had dreams about Jesus. They're afraid to tell it lest they be killed. But they're going to be able to come out of the hiding as millions of Muslims converted. And then, according to Romans eleven thirteen, this will provoke Israel to jealousy. And they'll be the last to get in on it, Jews whether in Golders Green or Tel Aviv, whether in <laughs> Brooklyn or Jerusalem, will be uh, unable to see that they missed it and that Jesus is their Messiah. It begins with the awakening of the church. Not everybody will be saved. The result, nonetheless, will be a restoration of the fear of God everywhere. And as it is put in Acts 3.21, he must remain in heaven 
until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his prophets. It's in Isaiah chapter 2. It's in Habakkuk chapter 2. It's in those prophetic words, the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That will happen before Jesus comes, but after the wake up in the middle of the night. How would you feel if it happened right now? Are you ready? Where will you be? Will you be among the wise virgins who took the oil in their lamps? Or will you be among the foolish ones who miss out entirely on the greatest work of the Spirit in 2,000 years? I hope that this word will turn somebody around who's getting a wake-up call from the Holy Spirit long overdue to respond and say, yes, Lord, you've got all of me from this moment, from this moment. And before I close, what about that question I asked half hour ago? If you stood before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? What came to your mind? I've, I've given you the answer now. But if you didn't have the answer then, here's what you should do right now. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. You don't need to say it out loud. But if you know that your hope of getting to heaven until about a half hour ago is that you thought, you know, if you're good enough, but now you know it's not going to help at all. You need to pray this prayer right now. Lord Jesus Christ, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. 